Edmonton Oilers have enjoyed a successful start to the Ken Hitchcock era, with the adjustments brought in by the legendary NHL coach tightening things up defensively and creating more scoring opportunities. Their play is also being bolstered by the solid goaltending tandem of Miko Koskinen and Cam Talbot, and has led to a flurry of wins. All this success with a bit of a blast from the past as former Oilers captain Andrew Ferentz recently sounded off on the team's dressing room culture of a few years ago, and how it might explain why things were the way they were back then, when Dallas Aikens was coach, and even explain why things are the way they are now. I'm Jim Matheson. I'm Derek Van Deest. I'm David Staples. And I'm Craig Ellingson. I talked to hockey beat writers Matheson and Van Deest about the team's play under Hitchcock, and I talked to Staples of the Cult of Hockey about the atomic bomb dropped by Ference on a recent podcast with NHL insider Elliot Friedman. This is the Oil Spills Podcast for Tuesday, December 11th, 2018. So Ken Hitchcock has this team playing a different they're playing differently. Obviously they're winning games, close ones, and they have been for the entire time Ken Hitchcock's been, you know, coaching the team since he replaced Todd McClellan. What is he doing? What's the difference here? Uh the message and the messenger. I think when you've coached fifteen hundred games in the NHL, you've won a Stanley Cup as a coach. You're the third winningest coach in NHL history after Scotty Bowman and Joel Quenville. Uh I think you get the player's attention a little bit more than, say, Jeremy Colleton is getting it in Chicago yes. and Willie Desjardins getting it in L.A. and whatever other coaching shuffle you make in the, in the middle of a season. Um, he has a resume and a certain stature that most other coaches don't have. And he's, he's not working for his, for his job. If he's not coaching at the end of the year, so be it. The other coaches have contracts uh i think it in, to a degree it it might cloud how they coach and it also clouds how the players treat the coach too um if you're going into the last year of your contract and you've heard this guy's talking to you for four years and maybe you want to hear a different voice and it's more difficult for that coach than than a guy coming in as ken hitchcock is uh knowing that whatever he wants to do he's going to do because the general manager brought him in to fix what he thought the problems were and if he wants to play this guy over that guy the general manager can't say much and, and that's a, I think as a coach that's exactly what you want you'll play the people you want to play where you want to play and if the players don't like it well too bad I think anyone has ever spoken to Ken Hitchcock he's just he's he's mesmerizing when you talk to him just the the knowledge that he has about the game it's 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 i think it, there's something about him just the way he talks about hockey and just his passion for the game and his knowledge of the game and and his he's he's he, the way he researches it and he he knows everything there is to know about this game and then when that when he talks to you about it, it that comes across as hey i better listen to what this guy has to say because this guy knows what he's talking about and and it's that sense i i get that from the players that he comes in. He said he was going to be hard on him. He was going to be. He's, he's brutally honest with players, and I think sometimes in today's day age that doesn't necessarily go well because these players 
all throughout their lives have been told how great they are. And when someone comes in and says, no, you're doing this wrong and this is the problem that you're having, sometimes that's hard to take. But when Hitchcock, his style has been that way for so long, it's effective because you listen. He, he tells you something because he wants to make you better. And I think that's the, the key thing when, when players talk about Ken Hitchcock is that he does it to make you better. He's, he wants to, you to be a better player. And, so, and then if you're a better player, it's going to make us a better team. And I think that's the, the message early on that a lot of guys are getting is that, okay, he's telling me that I'm doing this wrong or doing, should be doing this instead. And they listen and, and they pay attention to that. And I think right now we're seeing the players – kind of have their eyes open maybe a little bit and, and wanting to impress this this coach because he's been around. He knows everything there is to know about this game and, and he's so knowledgeable and smart. And that you just take that message and you're like, okay, he's right. You don't question the message. And I, I'm not saying that the, the players maybe questioned Todd McClellan's message. They probably didn't. But uh, it just when he says it, you just take it for fact. When, when, when Ken Hitchcock tells you something, you just take it as a fact and you try and incorporate that. And I think that's what we're seeing right now with the Edmonton Oilers. If he tells you to be in a certain spot and do a certain thing, it's because he wants to make you a better player. And he's going to lean on you to do that. But I think players accept that, especially early on when he comes in here. And I think right now, that's what the Oilers are seeing. And then if you're getting results, you look at Ken Hitchcock's record. It's 7-2-1. and one. It should be 8-1-1 one one because they blew that game in Anaheim late. So... They're getting results, and, and it's working. And I think that's really going to help resonate that message, and the guys are, are, are really going to go to the wall for this guy because you look at him and go, he knows what he's talking about. They're on the edge, though, when they won 11 of 14 one-goal games. Um, the law of averages suggests they're going to start losing some of these one-goal games that they've won, and they've won six one-goal games with Hitch coaching and lost one. So... That was in Anaheim. Yeah. They won all the other ones. And, you know, they're winning the close games, but like I said, they're going to lose some of those as well. But yeah, they're in the pl- playoff race, and that's what players care about, you know. And, and there's so many fans out there wondering, well, can they make the playoffs? But can McDavid also win the scoring title at the same time? I think, truth be known, if if – McDavid had his choice between getting 120 points and having a third scoring title and being out of the playoffs again. Uh, he'd he'd say, "I don't want that. I'd rather be in the playoffs and get a get 100 points and somebody else get 110 and win the scoring title." So he's about winning. This is his fourth year and he wants to win. And you know, I'm not saying he won't reel in the guys in Colorado anyway and win the scoring title, but he he looks like a guy now that that is a lot happier coming into the dressing room than it was before when when no matter how they played they were losing the games. Yeah, I know it's early into Hitchcock's tenure here and but you're right. I mean, of course everybody wants them to keep winning or winning at the same pace. You know, obviously if they do, they'd probably end up being first in the conference if not the league. Um if they were to somehow do that. But I mean, you know, if history means anything, uh, you know, Hitchcock's recent stops in other cities with teams that are better than the orders even now such as St. Louis or even last year's Dallas team I mean it's not like those teams w- end up winning the Stanley Cup and you know and obviously he moved on from those teams as well for a reason so I can't expect that you know we're going to keep seeing a 7-2 and 1 clip every 10 games they only have to be will. they only have to be 2 games over 500 every every month 
from now till the end of the season will be in the playoffs. You know, that'll be, you know, they're 16 and 12 now. You know, if they're 8 to 10 games over 500, they'll be in the playoffs. It's not, they don't have to play that great every month. They just have to be a couple of games over 500. Yeah, I think that's the key is, is you look at the number of games over the 500 record you have to finish at. It is between 8 and 10 to get into the into the postseason. I think, and I know that's, that's what they're looking right. And okay, right now they're four games over that mark. So, but I, I think Hitchcock, he has, um, there is a time limit to his stays, I guess, because you can only lean on guys for so long before they kind of start to rebel. And I think that may be the issue is that he's, he is he is hard on your players. He is honest with his players. Um, but after a while, that message is, is is hard to kind of take, and players kind of rebel against it. And I think that's just a, that's just a natural thing when you when you know if your father was hard on you all the time. Eventually, even though you know he's trying to make you a better person or make you better, you're going to rebel. And I think that's kind of what happens to Hitchcock. He he has a shelf life in certain places, and I think. But he but he's come in here, and he's only here for the year, or so far. That's the plan. He's only going to be here to try and get this team in the playoffs. Because like we said before. This team has to get in the playoffs this year, or they're cleaning house. I think Daryl Cates is not going to accept the fact that this team misses the playoffs again um, for whatever reason, and, and they'll clean house, and they'll start again. But he's not shackled by the fact that he's coaching for a job. He's retired. He came back, and now he's coaching for fun. He's coaching to help out uh, Peter Shirelli. He's hoping to help out Bob Nicholson. He's hoping to help out some of these friends of his. And I think that's the... the the big key here is that he's not looking beyond this season right now. Do we have a goalie controversy here at all? I mean, we've got Miko Koskinen playing all world. Matt, he's, 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 what, top five in save percentage and goals against average in the league through what, we're more than a third of the way through the season. But Cam Talbot has recently played very well as well. So the Oilers have two goalie options. Um, this is a good thing, right? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a confusing thing because for a couple of years it was Cam Talbot, Cam Talbot, Cam Talbot, Cam Talbot, oh, uh, Laurent Bassois. Uh, you haven't played in a couple of weeks. So we'll throw you in on a back-to-back somewhere on the road. I don't know if it's it, what what's easier for a coach. Uh, having one guy, so there's never a decision. He just plays that guy. You know, whether you're Henrik Lundqvist in New York or Price when he was at the top of his game, you just play that guy because you know he's better than whatever else you got. Or having two goalies and not knowing which goalie to play when and where. You want to keep both goalies in the loop. But you have to plan it a little bit more, you know. As a as a coach, you can't say, "Well, we'll just still play it by ear here." We got two goalies, but if this guy's playing good, I'm not going to guarantee the other guy a game. So I think you have to be a little bit more careful mapping out when the goalies are going to play, and I think they've they've done that. Koskinen's going to play in Colorado, and they've told Cam Talbot that he'll play either in Winnipeg or in Philadelphia against Philadelphia. At at Rogers Place. He'll play one of those, but not a guarantee he's going to play in Winnipeg because I guess, you know, if Koskinen gets another shutout, you don't want to sit him out to play Cam in Winnipeg. So, but 
One and one A's in this league now, I think, makes more sense and there's more comfort than having a starter and then crossing your fingers that he doesn't get hurt. If he gets hurt and you have a backup that never plays, then you're in trouble. Well, that's why Koskinen was brought in here. He was brought in here to challenge Cam Talbot for the for the starting role. I think there was, there was people that thought he could be an effective NHL goaltender just to, on just based on his size alone. He's six foot seven. He's a big, big guy. He's very mobile. He's actually really good um, with low shots. I find that he's really he's really quick. He moves his feet really quick for a big guy, and he covers the bottom of the net real well. There was issues with him. He was a, they said that he was a little leaky up top, and then he's got a basically a frying pan for a glove hand. He doesn't catch many pucks very well, but um, that's that's why he was brought in here is to challenge Cam Talbot, and I think this is the best-case scenario for the Oilers where they have two guys that are going, and then you look at Ken Hitchcock. He wants these guys to get into a bit of a rhythm, and I know sometimes that is tough, but if, if the team is winning, I think that's the only thing that really matters. So if, he, if each guy gets two or three starts consecutively, they get into a bit of a rhythm and he's got them both going. And then, then you're in really good shape. And I think for the last few years, they were, the Oilers were so dependent on Cam Talbot to be this all-world goaltender. They make all these great saves while they kind of work themselves into games. And he did that two years ago, and then he's kind of struggled the last two years to, to kind of do that. Now he's, he, he doesn't have the world on his shoulders. I think he's got another guy behind him that can get the job done if, if Cam is, is not playing well, if he's not up to snuff, if if, if, they, if he's a little off. He, he doesn't have that whole pressure, that burden of the whole team is depending on him now to to to, to, to win the game. And I think this is, this is going to help Cam Talbot relieve some of that stress, relieve some of that pressure. And I think it can work. It can, we, can, we, we have seen goaltending tandems in the league before that have worked. And I think this is a situation where the Oilers wanted this to happen and now it's happening, and I think they're, they're pretty happy with, with the fact that they were able to get Koskinen for $2.5 million this year. I think the Oilers have been through down two different roads in their history. I mean, obviously, the, when the Oilers first started in the NHL, they had Grant Fear and Andy Moog, uh, and it worked just fine until the playoffs when Glenn Sather would break Andy Moog's heart and say, oh, by the way, I think Grant's better, so Grant's playing. And even though they play half the games, split the, the season. And then Billy Ranford was a starter. And then Tommy Sala was a starter, uh, you know. And then there was a bit of a dry spell there before they they traded for um, Dwayne Rolison, who was a starter for a, by himself. And then Devin Dubnik, of course, they thought he would be the starter, but it didn't turn out to be the starter. He so was somewhere else. Though. He's somewhere else and playing somewhat quite well in, in Minnesota the last several years. So, you know, I I don't know. I, I, goalies break down more now. I. I the style of game they play, they get hurt, and I I think having a one and a one a works just fine. Now, eventually you're going to have to make a decision which goalie is your guy in the playoffs, you know, because you're not going to flip flop them back and forth. But in regular season, I think it works just fine, and it, and it works fine if both goalies have the same disposition as well. You know, if one of them thought he was better than the other one wasn't playing and was a whiner and a complainer, then it would be trouble but I don't see that from Koskin and I don't see this guy is almost flatline he just is never too high never too low according to the players the only time he gets mad is when he's losing at cards on the plane so but in the game <laughs> uh you don't see that at all so that which is a good thing you know and I don't we don't have to look any further than this region of the continents uh, to see examples of you know one and one A's Calgary's got that with Riddich and Mike Smith 
you know, maybe one guy's playing better than the other, you know, ride him for a bit longer, and then that's clearly been, you know, something that's benefited the Flames this year, and in Winnipeg, too. Sometimes you have two goalies, and neither one of them is good enough to be a starter. They're like Vancouver, that's yeah. been the situation in Vancouver for a long time. where they've It happened here, too. It happened, felt that Markstrom eventually was going to be the guy, but, you know, he is not the guy, so they're getting by with Markstrom and Nilsson, but, you know... It, I don't like I said I like the one and one a as long as they're both playing well. Yeah, I think it's it's I think you're right, Jim, in the sense that yeah the position has changed a little bit. Games are a bit more intense, and I think uh, the body breaks down a bit more. The just the way goaltenders play the game now they're you know the, the, the going down on, on on going down a lot more than that stand up style of goaltending that we saw back in the '80s doesn't happen anymore. They almost all go down on every shot, regardless of where they're shot. It's taken from or where the shot is going. They they almost always all go, all go down. So, I think it's taken. Uh, it takes a bit of a toll. And and when you have two guys like that, you ride the hot hand, and and you have the ability to have to get a guy on a roll and to guy guy get hot. That's a good thing for your hockey team. And I think it, it's important that the team in front of you have confidence in in both guys. And right now they look like they do have confidence in both guys. And Koskinen is playing uh, great hockey. And I think he's benefited too from a bit more defensive style that the Oilers are brought in with. Ken Hitchcock, they're they're a bit more defensive, res- responsible defensively. I think I think that's the best way to put it. And 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 they're going into the right spots defensively, and they're winning battles. And, and I, I think that's that's the big thing. I think sometimes under Todd McClellan, they would get lost in the defensive zone and where to go and what to do. And I think right now that's benefiting both guys. To be honest with you, is when your team is responsible defensively in front of you. You know, I know we're talking about the now, and there's still quite a lot of season left, but. I can't help it in the back of my mind, at least. You know, these both these goalies are are on contracts that end at the end of the season, so it'll be interesting to see what the talk is as you know the season progresses and we get closer to the end. Because you know, there's going to be have to be some decisions made. But it'd for be, now, it'd be nice if they could get two goalies for about seven million dollars and say, okay, we got two goalies to play for yeah. the price of one, which a lot of teams, whether you're Lundqvist or Bobrovsky or you know that caliber you're paying that guy only one guy that kind of money and you're paying your backup hardly anything nice if you can get two goalies making about seven million dollars and say thanks a lot but you're right uh cam talbot you know on on the first of of january they can start talking to him about a a new contract you know going is an unrestricted free agent but I think they're, they're so wait and see with both goaltenders now to see. It's too. It's still a small snapshot with Koskinen. It's not like he's played thirty games. He's only you know he's uh, played half of that. So they want to see him through the league more than once. And uh, you know, but he's played Calgary twice, and so they knew from the first game in Calgary, and he shut him out in the second. So. That's positive. That's the thing about goaltenders, too. That's a good point, Jim, is that goaltenders are a bit like pitchers. You, you know, pitchers, you see a team for the first time and you usually dominate, then you come see the team the second time, they have a book on you. And I think a lot of, not a lot of teams had a book on Koskinen coming in here. They, they didn't know what he was like. They didn't know what he could do. And, and it's going to be interesting. You're right. Once they start playing, he plays these teams a second and a third time, and they kind of develop a strategy against him. And I think that's going to be the, the true test uh, for, for Miko Koskinen is – is when he plays the Calgary three of the four, the, the five times, when he, when he plays the L.A.s the second, third, fourth times, they're going to know him, and they're going to know his weaknesses and his strengths, and I think they're going to try and exploit that. And in today's game, 
the goaltending coach, he helps your own goaltenders, but he's also out there to try and find weaknesses in the opposing goaltender too. That's his job as well. And I think uh, goaltending coaches do a good job of trying to spot weaknesses in their opponents' goaltenders. And we're going to see that now. That I'm still waiting for that. the first goaltender coach of the team that I cover and Derek covers to say, you know what, here's, here's our guy's weakness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what, it doesn't have the greatest glove or whatever, you know. Yeah. You can beat him on the short side. You know, he's still waiting for the first goalie coach over a couple of beers. He says, you know what, <laughs> our goalie needs a better glove hand. You know, Derek's right. There's a lot of goalies in this league. It's, you know, it's the Teflon uh, frying pan as a glove because they don't, they don't glove much. First time, David, you've been on. Yeah, it's the uh, podcast. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks. Me. Now, and this is going to be a regular, regular thing with us, David. When he has a time to join me and others to talk about orders, we will have him in. And today is the day. Now, yesterday came down the 31 Thoughts podcast from Elliot Friedman. He had Andrew Ferentz as a guest, and he's of course the former orders captain from a few years ago. Um, and he was here during the Dallas Aikens years. Um, in fact, he came in his first year. He signed with the Oilers after coming off of Boston. And that was when, that was 2013. And Aikens was hired uh, just before that season or in the summer. Anyways, um, very interesting podcast uh, in that he was basically, you know, detailing more what it was like in the dressing room among that, that group of players five years ago, four or five years ago. And why his viewpoint on why things went sideways? Um, basically, he comes very much to the defense of Dallas Aikens, who, you know, rightly and wrongly, has earned a lot of criticism for the way that team performed. Um, he was basically putting it on the players in the room, mostly the culture that was there. Um, there are no names named in there. Uh, but I think, you know, if we're trying to read between the lines and consider what, you know, former players such as Taylor Hall have said in the media, um, even after he was traded to New Jersey, I think it's pretty clear that he's one of those players that Ference is referring to. And, yeah, I don't even know where to go from there. I mean, the Hall and Eberle and, and maybe some other guys sure. clearly are the... He's talking about young players on the team, and um, he is. And uh, do you want me to read the passage from? Why don't you? Why don't you? Let's. What, um, so there's a couple areas he deals with, like the toxic fans, mm-hmm. um, criticism of the fans. What did yep. he say there? Well, like, let's. I think that's a, that's an important one to go over. Let's let's look at that. I mean, I'm scrolling through my computer because you know David told me to print this thing off before we started. And I said <laughs> I don't need to do that. Right near I the could top. just use my my fine. He first he, he started out uh, here getting into the toxic fans first and um, talking about how it was for Jeff Petrie and Justin Schultz. Here it is. I think that the quickness that radio or newspaper or fans jump and attack their own guys is horrible. That's the quote. I think that the lack of quickness to defend players within the organization, that's another part there. I remember Jeff Petrie or Justin Schultz getting raked over the coals and nobody coming to defend them and just trading them after they've been beaten down for months. Uh, yeah, we have a passionate fan base here. I'm part of it. I, I write as a fan at the Cult of Hockey. And um, 
you know, my own rule is I, I try not to talk about the, like the player's personality or the, the player's character or the things I don't I have no idea about, uh, off-ice stuff I try to stay away from, and just focus on the play. Like on this play, this player made that mistake. This is, you know, mm-hmm. over the last 100,000 minutes of even strength time, he's made the same mistake that many times. But I can, I, I, I'm part of it where I, I can start fixating on a player and attacking that player constantly and get really down on a player. Like I get sick. Like as a fan, I get sick of seeing some players. Sure. Especially if they're, and I get sick of the way the coach uses players so I can get down on the coach. And I, I think we cross the line, though, when we start to get personal when we start to at them on Twitter, when we tag them on Twitter, especially, yeah. throw our garbage into their faces on Twitter, and it, you know you're going over the line, that you've lost the plot with the player. When you can't see anything good on the player, and all you're doing is seeing the bad, like Chris Russell right now, for instance, is a player who gets a lot of heat right now from some fans. And I don't think they can see any good in that player ever. When he has a good game, they never, when he has 10 good games in a row, they don't mention it. When he has one bad game, they start to go berserk. Mm. The interesting thing Ference points out, though, is he also thinks there was a lack of support from management in terms of standing up for these players, which is a really interesting comment because he played for another organization, two other organizations, Calgary and Boston, maybe a third, I can't recall. But so he, he's been, he was around the NHL a long time, and he saw how organizations did it, and he identified a problem with the Oilers, particularly, and let's face it, Justin Schultz was run out of town on a rail by fans who, who had turned on him. Now, he didn't play that well. It was also a situation where he was in over his head. He was put in tough minutes, put in situations where he couldn't succeed. But it's something for every fan to think about, especially because in social media we can get into players' faces in a way that we couldn't before. Now, the players should stay away from Twitter, obviously, and talk radio. But it's something just for us to ponder as fans. Maybe pull back now and then uh, on your commentary if, you, if, if you're getting too toxic. Yeah. I mean... This is the way it's been, I mean, particularly over the last dozen years in Edmonton, when the team has not been successful. And, you know, coming off a time, even through 2006, a time when you could expect the orders to be competitive and make the playoffs and work hard. You could see that in the players. And, you know, it was part, that was part of the culture, quite frankly, up to, up to that point. Was well, working hard. You know, I know yeah. that in the you know, mid-90s, now we're going back into ancient history time, but mid-90s when the team didn't make it for four years there after they traded away uh, much of the glory gang from the 80s. And they went through a rebuilding phase with Doug Waits and Ryan Smith and the like. Um, and they got back into the playoffs. And, and you know, that was, that was 20 years ago, though. But even up to 2006... They were, you know, they were uh, they were in the mix. They were, they were always a, a threat to make the playoffs. Yeah, they were, and but or more than the that, time. they were an over. They they were seen by fans, and I and I think they were seen as a kind of a lunch bucket team, mm-hmm. like you know, like uh, Greer and Horkoff, players who worked hard yep. at Pisani, uh, Ryan Smith. That was the identity of that team, and uh, I think fans were willing to accept a, a team on a shoestring budget that worked its butt off. There was something wrong though with those teams from. 2009 to 2016 they lack spirit and there was too many stinker games there was um uh there was they didn't stand up for each other on the ice it was it was demoralizing as a fan to see star players like hall included get hit and not have no one come to their aid uh, on the ice and this was a constant problem with this team so yeah it was it uh there, something needed to change, and Ferences was asked to put his finger by Elliot Friedman at what went wrong, and he, he identified the, 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 the over-criticism of the players, which can 
stop them from being bold, can stop them from taking chances, being risk takers on the ice. And uh, you could see that with a player like Justin Schultz. His game crumpled. He folded. He stopped. He could. This is a, an elegant hockey player who can really pass the puck, who stopped being able to complete passes in his last year. And I think that if you're a fan who was on his case constantly, you should think about that. But more than that, Ference has identified a problem within the dressing room of the younger players not acting in a professional manner. Being out on the road, um, uh, West Coast trip, every night he's saying, coming in at 5 a.m., not picking your spots. I, th- I think as fans we can all, and we all understand as, as young people, you know, I was in my 20s once, a long time sure. ago, and I, I, I drank a lot. I was out, you know, drinking we I played on a men's team. We were drinking after every game. But you know the coaches were here. If you, I, I I can take notes and we can. You know, <laughs> so uh, you know everyone was young. Everyone, but the whole idea is play hard, party hard, but work hard, and that's where that's where the problem is. The work hard, maybe in the games it was there somewhat, but even in the games it was lacking at times, and it was la- Ferentz is saying it's definitely lacking practice. In the comment that got me, Craig, more than anything else, that got my goat. Was and and why don't you find that? Uh, the Is that the derogatory, derogatory terms? It was Ferentz saying that players who came and worked hard in practice, there was a derogatory term. They were mocked essentially for working hard, and there was a derogatory term. He didn't say what it was. It was I'm guessing teachers' pet or coaches' pet, yeah. something like that, or maybe something a little bit more crude than that. Go ahead. What was it? What did he say? I mean, I can paraphrase it. I mean, yeah. he was he was talking about coming from Boston, like directly from the Bruins to the Oilers. I mean. You know, recent Stanley Cup winners like two seasons before, and he's he was talking about you know it came from a group where you're pl- you know playing with practicing against guys like Zidane Chara, Patrice Bergeron. I mean these guys are still upper crust. I mean Chara is forty forty one now, but these guys are still considered to be some of the best players in the NHL, particularly Bergeron. Um, he was practicing with those guys, and then going from that where they practiced hard. Those guys are Stanley Cup winners. You know, if we could look up to anybody, look up to those guys. They've done mm-hmm. it. And they practice hard. They have intensity, and he goes to comes to Edmonton. Um, and you try and he's, and I'll pick up the quote. And you can try to steal some of those values. We had some other guys who had been on playoff teams, and they had the same frustration. They'd come and practice hard, and there was a group of guys there in Edmonton that had like it was too cool to try hard. Derogatory terms for trying too hard in practice. That's the culture, right? That, That's that, what he said. That broke my heart as an Oilers fan. That hurt my head. So my question is. <laughs> You know, I and just clearly the Bruins weren't a team like that. You know, Ferris and Ferris talked about other players who come from other teams into this situation. So, as much as I can say, maybe it's a millennial thing or whatever. But and without knowing who, and does it really matter? Maybe we just had players who, you know, and, and the leaders in the dressing room were. I don't know. Let's just blame this all on Neil Yakupov, okay? <laughs> Let's blame it on Neil Yakupov. <laughs> okay, I think. What am I trying listen, to say? On the radio, on Twitter, everyone's talking about Everly and Hall in this context, and he yep. didn't name them, so we can't say for sure. Here's what we know about Taylor Hall: is that um, last last year, in the middle of of a season, an MVP season, a brilliant year, and, and clearly a, a, he was leading that team. Jason Strudwick was on the radio talking about Hall's incredible preparation now as a pro hockey player but in that year he said he's listening to the coaches and he didn't like to listen to them before and he didn't have dialogue with them before in Edmonton so he's talking about clearly like a he he didn't 
I mean, he wasn't. It wasn't an admission. I don't think he was owning that he didn't wasn't professional enough. But that, to me, was an admission. Like, what? You weren't listening to the coaches at Edmonton. Well, what were you doing? Yeah. So what we saw with Taylor Hall in that time, and I had my orders goggles on, and I I loved Taylor Hall's game. I was a huge Taylor Hall fan. I advocated for Taylor Hall to be on the Olympics team in 2014. At that time, he was not picked. He was not picked for a reason, and it was because of his two way play. Now, there's people who will bring out goals plus minus goals for percentages is, is the defense of Taylor Hall at that time here's the truth he was a he was an unbelievable attacking player from the day he got in the NHL and that was in 2013-14 he was at his peak as an attacker he was fine he was fantastic on the attack but he was a he was a mediocre to weak defensive hockey player at the cult of hockey for years we've studied studied every scoring chance for and against the orders we break down the video and I'm a Taylor Hall fan at that time. I'm a loyalist, a diehard, and I, I'm seeing he has the highest rate of mistakes, major mistakes, mistakes on scoring chances against of any Edmonton Oilers forward. He's a winger, and that's happening. He's not like a center who's put in all kinds of really tough defensive positions all the time, but Hall's rate of mistakes on scoring chances against are off the charts. This is not good. And at one point I wrote a post about it. I hated to have to write it, but you have to be honest. This, this is the truth about this player. He was a mediocre defender in Edmonton. And when he went to New Jersey, he had a rough year. And, and there were stories in the, in the uh, New Jersey press that summer. The coach, I think the GM, had a heart-to-heart with that player, with Tater Hall, before his MVP season asking him for to commit more, asking him to work harder. He responded. And Strudwick made the point, some players don't respond, some players too do respond. Good for Tater Hall for responding. Good for him raising the level of his game. But to pretend that that he didn't need to do that or there was no no issue here with his two-way game at Edmonton, I, I think the evidence is in. And Ference has uh, dropped the nuclear bomb here of, of evidence pretty much. And there we are. Hard to take for fans, Craig, because well, and this is Hall. a live issue because of the, the people want Shirelli fired. This is why this is political, right? Because people want Shirelli fired. They want him fired for the Taylor Hall trade. If Shirelli had a reason, a, a necessity of moving Hall because of wow. team culture and work ethic, and that was a huge part of the factor. People and, don't want to hear that because they want to blame Shirley for a terrible Is trade. that something that was known across the NHL? And is that why you're getting the return yes. of Adam Larson as opposed to, say, the puck-moving defense? Peter Angelo, right? Alex Peter Angelo instead yeah. of Adam Larson. Is that why? So this is, a politi- this is political in order yeah. fandom. This is why this is such a hot topic. Yeah. Years later, when, when these things come up, Twitter absolutely melts down, explodes. And it's because of the trade of Tater Hall is still a live issue and whether or not Peter Shirley deserves to be fired. And so you, you, as of just you try to weigh it all, and you try to be fair in your assessment. And my take on it was, I always thought that New Jersey would get a win out of that trade because I thought that Taylor Hall would respond to being moved. Um, and I, but I thought I hoped the Oilers would get a win out of it. And we'll see. I mean, the first year they did, Adam Larson was great. The second year, Larson was hurt, didn't get a win. Yeah. This last year, this year, he's playing better again. Adam Larson's a good player. Now, the fact that Taylor Hall really responded, though, and became an MVP, um, you know, would he have become that in Edmonton? That's the, un, that's the unanswered question. And did they need to move him to change the culture? Did they mo- need to move Everly to change the culture? You know what? It's starting to, I think, when it's, we start to hear from more players, when more people are feel, Andrew Ference, was free, he's free to speak. 
Dallas Akins isn't. He can't say what he really thinks because he's still hoping to get a job in the NHL. He can't talk about openly about what went on in another city. But as time goes by and we hear more, I think that we're, it's going to start to weigh that the Oilers actually, there was a need for Shirelli to make some pretty decisive moves here. You don't trade. You know, Todd McClellan was the coach then. I didn't hear him crying, cry, saying anything negative when that trade was made. He sounded pretty positive about it the day the trade was made, the Taylor Hall left town. Um, they, they had a huge hole to fill with Adam Larson. So, I mean, that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm, I'm not, obviously the trade didn't work out great last year, but I, let's hope the Oilers get a win out of it. Yeah. I'm speaking as a fan. I'm hoping the Oilers get a win out of that trade and it's still possible. Yeah. I mean, if it is, and we're, we're assuming that Taylor Hall was the central figure in this, he was one of the guys, you know, saying, oh. He's, he was such a dominant personality. You yeah. can see that from a mile away. This was Taylor Hall's team. I mean, Absolutely the summer McDavid came in here, he, you know, I, I, I heard the plan was, and I think this was written about, the plan was for Taylor, Connor McDavid to live with Andrew Ference mm-hmm. and to room at their house. And then all of a sudden, McDavid's training with Taylor Hall in Ontario and their best buds, and McDavid's living with Taylor Hall. Again, we don't. No, we don't. We know. don't. We can only guess at what's going on here mm-hmm. and the di- all these dynamics. But we do know that Taylor Hall was traded like this fantastic attacking hockey player. And so you have to either think Shirley was insane, like he's just a big dumb dumb Mister Insanity, or there are there are lots of reasons that the deal was made, and maybe we're starting to understand this in a in a in a little bit more deeply. Yeah, I know. I. I Picturing Taylor Hall at practice, giving guys a hard time, trying hard. If that's what was happening, that's what that's that's the image I have in my mind right now. And if you're the GM, no wonder he's got no hair. No, well, neither do I. <laughs> neither do I. Um, I wasn't really worried about that. Other reasons, um, but so clearly, there's more than one path to the NHL than just. And I, you know, writing down all the things, you know, is it is it a rare thing to expect players to bring? all of talent, skill, hard work, and intensity all the time. I would expect that for how, many, how much money they're being paid for, for all the players. But, you know, just like life, just like in any walk of life, whether it's any business or any working situation, you always have a variety of people. Oh, come on. These variety are- of personalities, and, and, and a hockey team yeah. is no different. It's no different in the NHL. It's no different on an Adam team or you name it. These, these are... These are young men who are like they're like fighter pilots. I mean, they're like they 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 high high adrenaline guys, right? Who who are incredibly daring and courageous individuals, brave on the ice, even like they're. And Taylor Hall has so much guts, but you can imagine that same personality um, at a bar, right? Sure. Where okay, how many shots can you do? That kind of thing, right? Yeah. Like, and these are young men. Like, there's a high percentage of young men. Who are when they're university age, or their behavior is that of an alcoholic. That's how much they're getting drunk. That changes as they get out of their twenties and thirties. They drop off the drinking. They don't drink as much. But this is just for any young man. This kind of hard partying thing is tip is not atypical. There's you know thirty, forty, fifty percent of young men who are doing this kind of stuff when they're young men, and they gradually drop off and they get more mature. So for a young hockey player, like like a high adrenaline guy, a high status guy, to be living hard and partying hard is is absolutely zero surprise at all. And you know, and and I, and I want to give Taylor Hall real real credit because man, I, I didn't watch him last year, but from what everyone was saying and the way he led that New Jersey team, like good for him. 
to become such a fanatical, like to take that same energy and to put it now into becoming the best hockey player he can be. Good for Taylor Hall, and and I'm and he's realized his potential as a player. That is great to see. And I wonder too. I mean, playing in Edmonton under under the pressure, whether it's from the fans or media or internally with the team, and then going to a place like New Jersey where. You know, I know, of course, there's expectations. They pay just as much money to ice their team there, and they are out there to make just as much money as any team. Oilers, Maple Leafs, you name it. They're all out there to make money. But, it, you know, in Edmonton, this is the game. And it's and until something else comes along to knock it off its perch, it's always going to be the game. In New Jersey, it's part of New York. It's a different – It's it's – it's the third-rung team in that market, or, you know, it's tied with the Islanders at the very least. But So play, not being under the microscope, getting away from being in the fishbowl, um, a combination of that and growing up. I, I think what changed it for Hall was that. I don't know if the pressure got to him so much. No, I, I, think what, I think what got to him was the success of the Oilers, and he said he was resentful of it. Like, he... He he mentioned that like this, these yeah, when that he first left, year, right? that first year seeing that team and then his team his team was crappy and he didn't have a good year. Mm-hmm. He had another. He was kind of you know he had had some really great peak scoring years and then he was kind of trending down and there was a question like where's he going to go in his career? Like his first few months under McClellan, he was fantastic. First three months under McClellan, and then he trended down the rest of the year and it was there was an open question like where is this player going to head? His first year in near New Jersey was not great. But um, man, did he ever bring it? He had his peak year. It was always he was always capable of having that ninety point season where he was a good two way player the whole time. He finally had it. If there had been a Team Canada uh, Olympics this year, Taylor Hall would be on that team. He wasn't going to be on it in twenty fourteen when he had the same scoring, similar scoring rate. Something changed with Taylor Hall in his preparation, his attitude, and his game. And there's some people who don't want to admit that some fans like and um i just think they they're not seeing it straight yeah i mean chemistry you know the dynamic of a team what works what doesn't work um yeah i mean it all plays a part i mean you're catching lightning in a bottle you really are um you, you go back over the years and think about teams that have won the stanley cup you know I talk about lightning in a bottle. I mean, well, the Tampa Bay Lightning won it in what is it? Oh four. I can you know I can go on and on and on. All these all the different teams that just encapsulated the moment. Even the O six orders. I mean, push, pull, and drag. They got in and they went that far. So anyway, I don't know if there's much more to really tr- tread here. I think we've said it all, man. I think so. I mean, it's the ongoing figuring out what makes a team work. And the great thing about the, we've said it all, but of course, every other Oilers fan on earth will have their own take on it. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I don't think this new information is actually good. People are so entrenched in their positions on Taylor Hall and Shirelli, uh, which is the kind of the, the elephant in the room on this whole discussion. And no one's going to change their mind. People, most fans want to see Shirelli fired at this point, and that's not going to change. Even if the Oilers make the playoffs, that's not going to change for a lot of the fans, but I think uh, for the majority, if the Oilers make the playoffs and win a, win a, they got to win around. If they win around, Shirley could still hold on to his job, and that's a very bitter pill for a lot of people. That that's a possibility, but I do think it is a possibility. And and um, 
Well, that's why this is still this I is mean, why, that's why this discussion is so hot right now. And people say, why can't you get let go of the past? Well, that's why because the past is impacting the present. And I think about two things with Peter Shirelli too. I mean, we're all humans. I don't care how old you are. I mean, Peter Shirelli's a grown man. He's not a professional hockey player, but we all learn in our jobs. And you know, I would expect Peter Shirelli, you know, in, in some way, is learning about his job t- continuing. You know, you always hear about. People always learning. I don't care if you're 20 years old or 70 years old. You're always learning new things, different ways to approach things. I like to think that that's maybe happening. Um, and I had another point there. It's the nice thing about podcasts. I can just, you know, Well, you're talking about mistakes. him learning. He, he's, he's, yeah, he learned not to listen to whoever told him to uh, trade for Griffin Reinhardt. Sure. <laughs> well, that's on him, though. He's the GM. Well, he's got to do his due diligence. But, you know, you are relying on your scouts and your hockey people, and yep. they're all – Hot for Griffin Reinhardt. Like those are in Milan Lucic. That's completely on Shirelli. Come on, come on. I would have been okay. I'm not calling for the guy to be fired. I would have been okay with he was fired because of the leech. He, he misread where the NHL was headed. He signed Milan Lucic to that contract. He made the Griffin Reinhardt trade. He brought in two big slow players who played the game the old style. And they, they both of them, one of them is out of the NHL and the other one is, is if he doesn't pick it up, will be. So Shirley made enough major mistakes in the modern NHL to deserve to be fired. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a fair comment by any fan and anyone who holds. I've never I've never actually said oh I've never written that post. He should be fired because I want to see how this team does with a new coach because I wasn't happy with a lot of the things that McClellan did as a coach and I want I want a second opinion on this team and we're getting it right now. Let's see how it turns out and let's. Well, we also want some continuity, too. I mean, it'll yes. really be four years this spring when Shirelli was hired. Yeah. And, of course, the best case scenario is he comes in and the team just wins all the time. I mean, two years ago, yes, they went to the playoffs. You know, the seventh game of the second round. Great thing. Last year, obviously, a step back. But you talk about the Lucic signing and the Hall trade, the Reinhardt deal. We can also talk about what if Miko Koskinen gets three more shutouts by the end of January, you know? Because he only just started really being in the nets at the beginning of November. Their, their player acquisition, their their scouting seems to be a lot better. Now, I don't know. I, I understand it was Yari Curry, actually, who told Wayne Gretzky. Like, you know, the old boys get a lot of heat, right, too? Sure. But, but the hockey world is Yari, a small Yari world. Yari Curry telling Wayne, hey, there's this goalie here. A, the hockey world's out. a small world. Yeah. It's, People it, talk. It's and fascinating how Koskinen's played. I mean, what a, what a find. If he can, if he can continue this. Sure. I mean, wow. But that would be a feather. That is a feather right now. Just like Talbot was a feather. Maroon was a feather. Cassian, when he played well, was a feather. There was lots of moves. After Shirelli's first year, I mean, he was was up for executive of the year for a reason. Everything he, most of his moves had turned to gold, including people were, the vast majority of Oilers fans were cool with the Tater Hall trade at that point. They at least, they thought the Oilers got a win out of it because Adam Larson had played so well and the Oilers did well in the playoffs. So we'll see. The, the, the Peter, uh, many fans wish the Peter Shirelli chapter was over in Edmonton. It is not. That story still unfolding, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and, and I know why everybody's impatient, because they want to see consistency and winning. They want a playoff team every year. Every team, every market does. But with this franchise, 11 of the last 12 years out of the playoffs, I get it. People are antsy. They want the home run. They want it now. And quite frankly, I don't know if you're going to get that unless you give people way more rope. I hate to say it. You know, whether Shirelli ends up being the guy you should have hired in the first place or not. They I did mean, it right with McClellan 
They yeah. did it right with McCollum. They gave him that extra year. They're doing it right with Shirelli. Let's, but if they don't make the playoffs this year, maybe they got a win around for him to keep his job. Let's see where the team's trending at that point. But if, if he doesn't get it, but they've given these, these two individuals, McClellan and Shirelli, the right amount of time. They had to fire McClellan because he had had the right amount of time, and he wasn't, it wasn't turning around this year. He was going back to the old answers. The, the team was, was caving in. They had had a number of terrible performances in a row. It was time to make the move and see if someone else could do it. That was, if Shirelli hadn't fired McClellan, he should have been fired then. He needed to do that, and he, he made that very difficult decision, and he made the right decision. Now the question is, will they turn it around? Will, will the second opinion uh, from Hitchcock show that this roster actually can win? And if, if that's the case, then Shirley keeps his job. That's our Oil Spills podcast for today. You can listen to our show via iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud.